0: It's graduation time, and many of you young people just getting out of college are probably thinking, hey, the Obama presidency can't last forever. Maybe one day I'll be able to get a job. But then it probably occurs to you, oh no, I've just spent four years studying utterly useless left-wing tripe that has absolutely nothing to do with reality, not to mention the fact that I've continually cheated by buying my essays and test answers online Plus, weekends of blackout drinking have caused me to commit acts that have reduced me to a genuinely reprehensible person. Who would want to hire me now? Well, good news. After four years of nonsensical leftism, dishonesty, and poor behavior, you've acquired just the sort of experience you need to become a mainstream media journalist. That's right. You could soon be standing in front of a studio green screen with a picture of an exotic location chroma keyed onto it, experiencing all the thrill of lying about people and misrepresenting events. But wait, before you can enter the exciting world of mainstream journalism, there are a few things you need to know. Number one, a mainstream media journalist needs to be able to tell the difference between an example and an exception. An example is something that almost never happens but is very important because it exemplifies an idea you want people to believe. A Christian who murders people in the name of his religion is an example because he exemplifies the evils of Christianity. A Muslim who murders people in the name of his religion is an exception. An exception is something that happens all the time but reveals something a mainstream journalist doesn't want people to know, namely the truth. As a mainstream journalist, you'll also need to know the difference between a minority who must be praised and an ordinary person who can be viciously attacked. A black Democrat, for instance, is a minority, and anyone who criticizes him is therefore a racist. A black Republican is just a person and may be safely called an Oreo and compared to a house slave from Gone with the Wind. Women are also a minority because they're the majority, but vote Democrat. Finally, as a mainstream journalist, you'll need to know the difference between a heinous, unforgivable crime and a gray area. For instance, when Mitt Romney said he reviewed binders full of women as job applicants, that was the heinous crime of violently shoving women into binders. It was also part of the Republican War on Women, so it was actually a war crime. When Bill Clinton was plausibly accused of raping and forcibly molesting women, and Hillary Clinton slandered and helped silence his accusers, that was a gray area, because sex is really a private matter between a Democrat and his victims. If you can understand these simple rules, you could be ready for an entry-level position in the mainstream news media. Unless, of course, you have some serious psychological illness or character flaw, then you can skip the entry level and go straight to being an anchorman. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. <laughs> yes, job, job opportunities all over. If You've been studying leftism. All right, this is it. We're, we're we're rehearsing today. We're rehearsing today for going live on Monday, right? We're going to be yeah. live on our Facebook page yeah. on Monday. Does that mean will eventually people be able to contact us while I'm talking? Uh, yes. So you'll actually be able to curse at me while I'm talking. You won't yeah. just have to sit home like helplessly railing against the screen. You'll be able to like write things in and all. This. So you go on our Facebook page and you can just watch us do the show live or you can wait and it will be downloaded as always. All right? And now we're going – and now with that, we go into the Clavenless weekend. Last Clavenless weekend did not work out well, I have to say. It was really kind of a disaster. So you want to be – you might want to stay home under the bed, possibly, with your doors barricaded this Clavenless weekend. But let's wrap up the week by taking a look – let's take a look at what what happened, what went on this week. Because something actually did go – I think there has been some kind of weird little shift in the zeitgeist that is really different now than it was when the week began. First of all, let's, the one thing we have to say is people don't like Donald Trump. Okay, a poll came out yesterday. <laughs> a poll, yeah, Why? who knew? Who knew? <laughs> the Donald – poll came out yesterday. A new ABC News poll shows Trump's unfavorable rating at 70%. That's the highest it's been since May of last year. I'm reading from Fred Cole's The Daily Shot, an excellent newsletter from Ricochet. It's the highest it's been since May of last year, right before he entered the race when it came in at 71%. His lowest point during the primary season was only 60%, climbing back over time, dropping in May right after he secured the Republican nomination, then spiking up again this latest poll. This poll was taken, by the way, before the the mass shooting in Orlando, so people are not reacting to that yet. Uh, Hillary Clinton is not sitting so pretty. She's got a, a rating of 55%, which would be death for her as a candidate were it not for the record shattering unpopularity of her opponent. Interestingly, when you break the numbers down by sex, Clinton and Trump are equally unpopular among men, 63% and 62% respectively, but women really don't like Trump. Among females, he has a 77% favorable rating compared to only 47% for Clinton. So knowing women, that means they'll all vote for him, right? (laughs) I hate that that guy, but I think he really likes me, you know? So I'm going to keep voting for him. He didn't mean it. He didn't mean to be Trump. Anyway, uh, with Hispanics, he has an 89% favorability and with African Americans, that number is ninety-four percent. Does that mean like does that mean like six African American guys like him? I don't I don't even know what that, those numbers mean. All right, so he may lose the the election, and he definitely made an well I won't say definitely I think he made an unforced error yesterday when he announced that he was going to go and talk to the NRA about this ridiculous Democratic idea to ban people from getting guns if they're on the government terror watch list or the no-fly list. This is this is a horrible idea because the way you get on these lists is some bureaucrat in Washington says, I don't like that guy. I'm and, putting And we know plenty of people who have the wrong name or they have the same name as somebody else or they just don't like him and they put him on this list. You can't strip away his constitutional rights because some bureaucrat in Washington does that. There's no form of review. There's no judicial place you can go and say, I want to be taken off this watch list. So it's a terrible idea. Trump didn't say that he endorsed it. He said he would go discuss it. I, the reason I think it is a unforced error, I mean, it's not because he reveals himself to be a liberal. Because if you've been listening to e- either me or Ben or reading the Daily Wire, you know he's a liberal. He's a liberal Democrat. That's why you know, he may, maybe, maybe slightly to the right of Hillary, but, he, but he's basically a Democrat. And we've been warning you about this all this time. And so, like, if you saw that NRA thing and you went, "Oh, you just haven't been listening," you know, <laughs> you're the guy who's been shaking your fist at the screen, going, "You guys don't understand." Donald Trump is like, so all right, so he's a Democrat, but that's not why I think it's an unforced error. I think it's an unforced error because he's he had successfully changed the conversation to focus it on radical Islam, which is the problem. And it is what happened in Orlando. That is the story of Orlando. It is radical Islam and nothing else. And he even smoked out Obama and forced him to come out and start talking about this. And then he goes back and he picks up the Democrat talking points. You know, he lets them come back into the narrative. But, But having said that, he has done something. Something has happened. You can feel, I mean, there is a panic on the other side with all these unfavorable ratings and Hillary Clinton's poll numbers going up. I think she's 12 to – between 4 and 12 points ahead of Trump in the aggregate polls. There I am hearing a hysteria on the left because he has broken through the narrative. And, you know, yesterday – I was talking to a, a pal of mine who is a, a right-winger, but I can't reveal who it is because he's in the business and he, he has to be on the down low so he, doesn't get, so he can still get work. And I said to him, what is, it, what is it that Trump does? There's nothing that Trump says about Islam, radical Islam, that Ted Cruz didn't say. There's not, you know, they all said it. They all, all the Republicans were willing to say it, but somehow, somehow Trump shatters, gets at them. He gets them to – to come out, and my friend said to me, you know, it's because they're bullies, and he's a bully, and he speaks the language they understand. He's like a bigger bully than they are, and they and these guys, these guys are used to having like little guys kind of say like Ted Cruz sort of say, well, you're not really explaining this properly. Like the little guy at school says, you can knock me over, but that doesn't make you right, you know. But they're not used to a guy coming in and just kicking dirt in their faces, <laughs> and that's why they're panicked. You can if you look at the New York Times. A former newspaper and now just the mouthpiece of the left. It's the whole page is screaming narrative. It's just screaming narrative. It's it's about homophobia. It's about guns. It's about America. It's about Republicans. Is it like no? It's not about non-Islam. Islam. Forget forget anybody. You know. Don't look at. Pay no attention to the the Muslim behind the mirror. You know, behind the curtain. Pay no attention. Charles Blow, who, uh, whose name I love because he really does blow. He he is one of the he is one of what I call knucklehead row, which is this a group of. Well-educated, well-dressed, well-spoken idiots who write op-eds in the New York Times. The stuff they say is so dumb. You know, um, who is it? Mara Liason was on that Fox panel the other day, and she said, if Donald Trump is a cartoon of what leftists think Republicans are, the New York Times writes editorials that are a cartoon of what right-wingers think leftists are. So here is Charles Blow writing about the guy, Omar Mateen, the guy who killed all these people in Orlando. And the headline is, Omar Mateen, American Monster. American monster. Listen to this. The massacre in Orlando where 49 people were gunned down came at the hands of a coward and a monster. But make no mistake, this was our monster. The shooter, 29-year-old Omar Mateen, was born and raised in America. He killed other Americans using at least one American-made gun, including an assault rifle that he purchased legally from an American gun store. I mean, this guy was as American as apple pie. He was corn-fed and just, you know, he was right from the plains. This was both an act of domestic terror and a hate crime, but it is ours And it demands that we consider our policies, foreign and war policy, anti-terror policy, gun policy, and our cultural toxicities, including our toxic political culture, toxic male culture, of course, and toxic anti-LGBT culture. We need to turn inward because this guy was just so American. Lastly, we must remember that our foreign policy, whether bombing Muslims or banning them, has consequences. Omar Mateen was an American-made monster, and America must decide... How best to make fewer in his likeness? What garbage, right? And, but that's panic. That, if Trump started that. Trump got these guys going, you know, because they, you know, how could somebody sit there and write that? You know, one of the things is, is like, I make my living with words. I have done since I was a young, young man. That's all I do. And what, the one thing I always think to myself is, look, you can't always get at the truth. You can't always tell the truth. Sometimes you fail morally and you're dishonest. But at least every day you should be trying, to, seeking to get to that truth, pushing against your own your own desire to lie, pushing against the things that you want to believe, pushing against your illusions, pushing against everything you've been taught, and trying to get at what's really happening. Or else, why do it? Why do it? Why not just write garbage? You know, just write some, some you know, The Bachelorette or something like that. If you're trying to write something, try... This guy sat down and basically tried to fool you, tried to lie, because the whole newspaper is in a panic. They're like women, you know, in a, in a a with a mouse, you know, running around screaming, Oh, it's a Trump. Trump is in our house. we got, got to say it's American. It's American. And, you know, he has somehow, with his bullying, has shattered the narrative, which is a good thing. Let me just play for you. I just have to play this one guy, Farid. Farad Kreshi, he, is a, he runs a thing called IslamNet in Norway, and he is a salafist who is trying to uh, spread the word of, of Islam. And he had this – this is a few years ago, not long, two or three years ago. He had this gathering in Norway where he had this whole room full. If you can't see this because you haven't subscribed, you haven't plunked down your lousy $8 a month to subscribe, you would be able to see this. But if you can't see it, it's a room full of young Muslim men <coughs> because they don't let the women sit with them. And Farad Kreshi is explaining to them that every time they talk about Islam they're called radicals and you know radical Islamists. Play it.
1: Every time we have a conference, every time we invite a speaker, they always can come with the same accusations. This speaker supports death penalty for homosexuals. This speaker supports death penalty for this crime or this crime or that he is homophobic. They subjugate women, etc., etc., etc. It's the same old stuff coming all the time. And we always try to tell them, I always try to tell them that, look, It's not that speaker that we're inviting who has these extreme radical views, as you say. These are general views that every Muslim actually has. Every Muslim believes in these things. Just because they're not telling you about it, or just because they're not out there in the media, doesn't mean they don't believe in them.
0: And and then he takes a show of hands. He says, how how many of you believe that homosexuals should be killed? All the hands go up. He says, are you radicals? No. You know? <laughs> I mean, and and where, where do these guys, the head of ISIS has a PhD in Islamic studies. Where do these guys get off telling him he's not a Muslim? I wouldn't tell a Ph.D. if a Ph.D. in Islamic studies says I'm a Muslim. I'm not going to say to him, "No, you're not." What do I know? I mean, I gotta just. I'm, take, I'm taking advice from him, not not the other way around. You know, yes, this is what we do. We kill people, and we uh, you know we punish homosexuals with death. This is this is it. You know, it's like that guy said, we must not be embarrassed by this. This is who we are. You know, but you be you, guys. You be you. you know? So so this na- this screaming narrative is coming out, and the other narrative, and and now everybody, the whole left wing machine, which remember is the entertainment media, the news media, and our educational system. All of it is screaming narrative. So now on every late night show, it's not making jokes about Donald Trump. It's not the old, like, Bob Hope, Johnny Carson, a few jokes about Trump, a few jokes about Clinton. These guys are in full attack mode. Stephen Colbert drew a swastika describing, you know, it's basically calling him a Nazi, did this whole routine where he did a chart, and every time he drew on the chart, it turned out to be a swastika talking about Trump. Who's the other guy? Seth Meyers. We have a, here's Seth Meyers. He's just a version of what they're all doing. Man, I gotta say, when it comes to bigotry, Trump keeps upping his game. He's like if Joseph McCarthy was exposed to gamma radiation and became a racist orange hulk, but with tiny hands. Hulk mad, hands too small to smash. So, so this is, remember, the whole thing about Trump is that he is talking, this is the language they talk. And they don't think they're being uncivil at all. They think that Trump is being uncivil. They, you know, they think Trump just kind of came out of nowhere because this is what Republicans are like, where they're lovely. They're lovely. They can say that about him. They can say that about him. And it's OK because he's Trump. He's wrong. He's terrible. He's mean. He's rotten. But they don't realize they've been saying this about all of us. And the question is, has their ticket been punched? Has their, has their credibility finally run out? Because, you know, we, we all know this. You say, you say like, gee, you know, there's a lot of crime in the black neighborhoods. Oh, you're a racist. You know, it's a terrible thing to say about somebody that he's a racist. In America, it's an awful, awful thing. When somebody calls you a racist offhand like that because you've expressed, you've noticed a fact or expressed an opinion, that's an awful thing to say, and yet they do it without thinking. The Republicans are to blame for Orlando. But that's not that's not uncivil. It's not uncivil to say that 50 percent of or whatever it is, you know, the Republicans are to blame for these murders. It's not uncivil to say that a Christian who believes that marriage is an, an act between a man and a woman is somehow complicit in this. That's not uncivil. But Trump is uncivil because he comes out and he calls and he plays their game. He talks just like them. And you know, the thing is, it's always with the, the mainstream media, it's always not what they say, it's what they don't say. Because you want to attack Trump, listen, you've heard it he all, there's nothing about Trump that you haven't heard on this show. <laughs> you know? And if I miss something, Shapiro comes in and he says it. Because you know, he's, he's more he's further along than I am on this, on this uh, train. It's not what they say, it's what they don't say. Because let's, let's look for a minute, Let, let's just look for a minute at what's coming down the other side of the aisle, okay? What is coming at us from the other side of the, the aisle? Oprah Winfrey, whom we all remember, has endorsed Hillary Clinton, no big surprise. I used to live on Oprah Winfrey Street, and every now and again I'd come home, and like a Secret Service guy would be standing there, and I couldn't get (laughs) in. I'd have to show him my ID before I could get in my house. It would be another Obama fundraiser would be going down down the uh, street. So she endorses Hillary Clinton, and they're, they're having this thing at the White House called United States of Women. I think this is last weekend. And Oprah is there, and she interviews Michelle Obama. Just listen to just a little cut of this.
2: What can men do, leaving here? Be better. (laughs) Be better at everything. (laughs) Be, Be better fathers. Good. Lord, just being good fathers who love your daughters and are providing a solid example of what it means to be a good man in the world, showing them what it feels like to be loved, that is the greatest gift that the men in my life gave to me. And we've talked about this, the fact that I've never experienced abuse at the hands of any man in my life, and that's sad to say that that's a rare reality.
0: I mean, okay, but that's not offensive. If I said, kiss off, baby, you know, be better, you know, like, he, he, you know, it's like, if I just said, if I just said, go to hell, lady, you know, that would that would be uncivil, but what she just said, I mean, that is so offensive. Be better. you be better. You know, maybe we're not better because you're not better. You know, I mean, I, whenever a woman says she can't find Mr. Right, I always ask her, you know, are you Miss Right? You know, <laughs> it's like maybe Mr. Right is looking for Miss Right, you know, like, I mean, maybe the, the problem is goes both ways. That thing about being yeah, and be good fathers to your daughters. What about your sons? What about good fathers to your sons? And that it's rare for a woman to live without being abused? You know, really? I mean, that that is really offensive. And and the, the terrible thing about this is, by the way, she's talking, you know, if she's talking to the black community, she's talking to a community that has been decimated by the policies that she supports. The, you know, back in the 70s, I guess it was, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Democrat, brought out that famous report where he said we have to be concerned about the black family because it's falling apart. And our welfare programs are paying people to have kids out of wedlock and paying fathers not to be responsible. We The government is replacing fathers and the family is falling apart. And everybody said the feminists were, went after him like, oh, that's so racist. Uh, you know, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Well, now, you know, more black children are born out of wedlock than during slavery days when the damn slavers were breaking families up, were selling families down the the river to keep them apart. More of them are out of or are born out of wedlock now, which just entails a tremendous amount of generational poverty, prison, suicide, all kinds of terrible problems. You know, look to yourself, Michelle, look to your own policies, look to what you did to that community. But that's fine. So okay, so now all us men have to be better. Let's look at the woman they're putting forward as their first, oh, my gosh, you know, the, the glass ceiling is shattered. We are so happy. You know, let's look at look at this for a minute. Elizabeth Warren, whom we all know, Focahontas, right, now a senator, is one of the women, according to the Wall Street Journal, who is, they're considering as vice president, a, a, an idol of the left. She was at Harvard a bankruptcy attorney and she wrote an op-ed about the the credit card companies were pushing a bill to make bank declaring bankruptcy harder. So here is a historic moment when I agree with Elizabeth Warren. that The credit card companies are usurers. They are they – when you – I know that guys like Donald Trump misuse the bankruptcy laws, but bankruptcy laws protect the weakest people, the least person, the guy who has gotten himself in credit card debt and is in real trouble. And some, And when the credit card people are saying – these laws; it should be harder to declare bankruptcy. They're basically saying, "Don't cut us off from <laughs> getting that poor widow who's been living off her credit cards." We want that, you know. Like so, you know, bankruptcy laws are a place where conservatives and liberals can see a lot, uh, somewhat eye to eye. So Elizabeth Warren writes a an op-ed and against this bill, and Hillary Clinton reads the op-ed and she is the first lady, and she calls her up and says, "I want to meet with you and see." And have you tell me about this bill? So they sit down in a hotel room together, and Elizabeth Warren, this Harvard professor, starts explaining this bankruptcy law to Hillary Clinton. Hear her describe his first cut.
2: And I got to tell you, I never had a smarter student. Quick, right to the heart of it. I go over the law, it's a complex law. Went over the economics, showed her the graph, showed her the charts, and she got it. Within 20 minutes, she could play where the rest of it would come. Well, then that will mean this part's happened. That will mean this has happened. I said, yes, that's right. And at the end of the conversation, Mrs. Clinton stood up. She said, let's get our picture taken, which we did. And she said, Professor Warren, we've got to stop that awful bill.
0: Hillary goes back to the White House. Apparently, she turned the entire White House around. They were supporting the bill. Hillary got the bill shot down, got it vetoed, okay? So she became that. And and she wrote about it. She wrote about it as a heroic act that she, the first lady, turned the administration around, got this bill vetoed. Okay, fine. Now she gets elected senator. What happens then? Elizabeth Warren, same interview with Bill Moyers. Here she describes what happens.
2: One of the first bills that came up after she was Senator Clinton was the bankruptcy bill. Uh, this is a bill that's like a vampire. It will not die, right? There's a lot of money behind it. And it bill just bill her husband had vetoed? Her husband had vetoed it very much at her urging. And? She voted in favor of it. Why? As Senator Clinton, the pressures are very different. Mm-hmm. It's a well-financed industry. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the industry that gave the most money to Washington over the past few years was not the oil industry, was not pharmaceuticals, it was consumer credit products. Those are the people the credit card companies have been giving money, and they they have influence.
0: And Mrs. Clinton was one of them, a senator.
2: She she has taken money from the groups, and more to the point, she worries about them as a constituency.
0: She got bought. She got bought off. That's what she's telling you. She got bought off. She, you know, there was no money on the, when you, when you're first lady, nobody can reach you. You know, you don't really have that kind of, when you're a Senator, you need that money. She got bought. You know, And we know she – and she's as, – as Trump himself has been saying, she's been taking all this money from people who kill gays, from Saudi Arabia, from all these countries, Qatar, you know, where, where they uh, torture gays and all these places. That's who – you know, she gets bought off. She will say anything to get elected, and she will do anything to turn, turn a profit. And you know who said so? Barack Obama. Here is a, uh, an ad that he ran when he was running against her in the primaries. It's what's wrong with politics today. Hillary Clinton will say anything to get elected. Now she's making false attacks on Barack Obama. The Washington Post says Clinton isn't telling the truth. She championed NAFTA, even though it has cost South Carolina thousands of jobs. And worst of all, it was Hillary Clinton who voted for George Bush's war in Iraq. Hillary Clinton, she'll say anything and change nothing. It's time to turn the page. Paid for by Obama for America. I'm Barack Obama, candidate for president, and I approve this message. <laughs> all I'm saying, all I'm saying is that, you know... If, if Trump is bad, if every day in the front page of the New York Times it's all about how bad we are, how bad America is, how bad you know homophobia is, how bad – and if every night you're listening to the comedians and they're the hip guys, they're the cool guys, they've got the irony and the sense of humor, they're telling you how bad Trump is, all I'm saying to you is what they're not saying. What they're not saying is he is bad, Trump is bad, but he is running against one of the lowest, most corrupt people in this country – and she can be bought, and she will say anything, and she's a power-hungry person whose soul has been emptied by that greed for power that has governed her entire life. She's sold out her dignity with her husband for it. She sold out everything for it. I'm just saying – That Trump has really shaken things up, and it's going to be a very interesting election. If he can crack shatter that narrative, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anybody can predict the outcome of this stuff. I like. I gotta end by talking a little bit more about noir because I love noir so much. And you know, we we get to the end of these shows, and there's only a minute left or something like this, and I just kind of run off and recommend something. But but one of the things I love about noir, noir is kind of the anti-western. If You know, if the Western sort of reflected the American ethos out on the wilderness where people had to come. If you watch Westerns, a lot of Westerns are about establishing civilization. They're about coming out to this place that's empty. You're a man alone but you're going to bring the law out to this place, and then you're going to win the schoolmarm, and the schoolmarm and the man alone are going to get married. He's going to become the family man. He's going to become the the rancher. He's going to defend the ranchers, or he's going to defend the ranchers and ride off into the sunset like Shane, but it's about establishing that world in, in a wilderness where you have family, where you have a town, where you have a society. Noir, it happens mostly after the war where people are now congregating in the cities and the wilderness is gone and everybody's moving into the cities because that's where the jobs are and that's where the industry is. And it's really about, it's about the same guy, the man alone, but it's about a man alone in a society that's falling apart. It's about a man alone who is alienated. He has nowhere to go. There's always, as every scene I played had a femme fatale in it. And the reason for that is because the... Instead of instead of the school the virtuous virginal schoolmarm who's going to bring the man, civilize the man, and bring him into these relationships, you're now dealing with these deadly women who are connected to nothing, who have, have their sex, they use their sex for power in the same way the men use their physicality for power. So it's the guy slapping the girl around, the girl outsmarting and seducing the guy. That's a, very well established in noir. I wrote a story called Her Lord and Master, which was about, it is in, I'm, I'm going to brag, it's in an anthology called The Greatest American Noir of the Century, this is the 20th century. I know. There it is. <laughs> so so is your genial host has, has actually accomplished a few things in life. And, then, and so before, before I fell to the level of sitting around with you people, yeah, they're talking. You. But, but anyway, uh, you know, and that's, and that's what it's about. It's about this relationship between men and women becoming out of control and becoming very uh, savage. And that's why these stories are so compelling. Now we've moved into a new phase where the central story is basically – the uh, science fiction story. And I think that that is establishing the, the fact that we're in the, um, in the, when we were watching Westerns, we were drawing on the resources of our past. When we were doing noir, we were established and worried about the, thing, the way things were unraveling. And now we sort of have this dream that maybe there's something, you know, an adventure, a wilderness beyond where the Western will start up again, but it'll be in the form of Star Wars. I always end with music, so I want to end with some of the greatest noir music ever written. Uh, one of the last kind of Im- imitation noir, still a good film, Chinatown, uh, by Roman Polanski, still a good film. But it was r- the music was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and I believe that most of the great orchestral music of the last fifty years is, mu- is movie music. I mean, I you know I always I walk out of films and I'll say to my wife, "That was great music," and she'll say, "What? I, I don't know," you know. <laughs> you know, and we w- we went and saw. Um, Oh, uh, Chariots of Fire. And I walked out and said, what an amazing score. And she was like, "Uh, there was music? I didn't, you know, (laughs) because most people aren't paying attention. They're paying attention to the story. But somehow I hear the the music. Jerry Goldsmith is just one of the greats. I mean, he wrote The Edge, that uh, David Mamet film with uh, Anthony Hopkins. If you listen to the music, it's fantastic. Hoosiers, one of my favorite scores of all time. And he wrote Chinatown, the the only funny, a quick funny story about Jerry Goldsmith. He wrote the score for The Omen, which is about the devil coming to earth. And he did a great job. He wrote this very scary chanting music where people are chanting stuff. And it won the Oscar. So the Oscar was given to a song that said in Latin... We eat flesh, we drink blood, hail Satan. And I always thought, thought, well, that's Hollywood in a nutshell, right? (laughs) (laughs) Goldsmith was just doing his job, scary movie about the devil. But I thought when they gave it the Oscar, I thought, yeah, we like this somehow. It kind of represents where we are. Anyway, he wrote the uh, noir music to Chinatown. It is a spectacular score. Here's just a little bit of it. That's done, right? That's all right. The Clavenless weekend begins. Keep your heads down, keep your guns close. If you survive, we'll be here again on Monday live. If you want to watch it live on Facebook or just through your usual subscription or where however you get us, but be here, we'll be here. I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Claven Show. We'll see you then.